We are studying time, and we are gaining a sense over the last number of weeks of God's wisdom for how we are to use time. And one of the things that we've been grappling with is the fact that everyone has the same limit of time. We all have 24 hours in a day. We all have seven days a week. Nobody gets any more or less than that. And so we're grappling with how do we make the best use of the time that God has given to us. And we're seeking his wisdom on this. And uh, one of the things that has come out most powerfully as we've consulted Proverbs and Ecclesiastes about time is the fact that our whole perspective is off as people, as Americans. We are scheduled right down to the minute. We have every single hour of every day filled. Our weeks are jam-packed, and we have to factor in the number of minutes it takes us to get from point A to point B so that we're not late, so that we don't stand somebody up, so that we don't waste time. All of these things we measure in hours and minutes, and what we've seen from the scriptures is that is not how God measures time. God's measurements for time and the way his wisdom deals with time is not poured out in hours and minutes. Those increments are too small. We've seen that God measures by days. He measures by seasons where we have large blocks of time. And when the scriptures talk about our use of time, it's really talking about our days weeks, seasons, the, the blocks of time that come back and back and back. And the question from the scriptures is, how are you using those blocks of time? Now, what we're going to see this morning is that there is an ultimate time limit that every single one of us has, and that time limit is death. Everyone in this room faces death. It is absolutely certain. There is no way to affect this limit. You can exercise and be a good steward of your body. You can have a prudent diet that will improve your standard of living, your, your quality of life. It'll, it'll improve your health in some measure. But ultimately, there is no button you can push. There is no routine that you can build into your days that either delays or moves forward your death. You might say, well, what about suicide? Can't we take matters in our own hands? Even there, friends, what you decide is disposed by God and by his permission. And that's one of the things that makes suicide a very grave sin, is, is the presumption of taking what belongs to God and throwing it back in his face. Nevertheless, uh, we are confronted this morning with the reality of this absolute time limit on your life. We will die. 
And this is something that our society is not candid about at all. It's a funny thing. Our society wants uh, to be open and candid about sexuality. We want our sexuality to be out there, shareable in so many ways that are so profoundly disrespectful to each other and, and harmful to our sense of dignity and harmful to our intimacy. We want that kind of openness and candor about sexuality, but just try talking about death in a social situation. You want to stop a conversation? Just bring that up. Done. I was um, in, a <laughs> in a rehearsal um, a few months ago and someone in the congregation passed away suddenly and, and uh, so I, I was uh, between rehearsals and needed to go minister to the, the family of the person who had died and uh, so I left a rehearsal in the morning and I, I went and Chris and I ministered to that family and then I, I went back in the evening for, um, uh, for the concert that night. So there was a, it was a long day, it was a lot of travel, but the funny thing was everyone in the orchestra knew what I had done because I, I mentioned, oh, well, someone passed away, I gotta head back to Chico from Reading and I'll be back this evening. And so word got around through the orchestra that this had happened, that this was part of my day. And a young guy had just graduated from college down in Sac State, uh, we were standing in the hallway the next day and he said, so you had to go talk to somebody yesterday whose husband had died. How do you do that? What do you, what do you say? What do you do? Why would you do that? Um, because there's not a good sense of what pastors are for today. Pastors are either activity directors or social workers, but what, what is this thing of going to someone's house when someone dies and, and walking with a family through that? And I said to him, well, this was a good death because this man knew the Lord Jesus Christ, his wife understood that, and so I was there basically to start doing some planning uh, for the memorial service, but I was basically there so that we could walk with her through this grievous time and give glory to the Lord for this man's passing. It was sooner than anybody expected, and I explained this whole thing, silence. It was like his eyes just kind of focused on the middle distance. It was like that wheel that your computer gives you, processing, processing, and it's just he just kind of walked away, and that was it. We don't do death. We don't talk about it. You're not allowed to grieve it, except maybe for an hour, then you're supposed to bounce back, right? This was not always the case. In past times, our society was, uh, and, and cultures around the world, this is still true today in many places around the world, were much more, much less open about sex and much more open about death.
We've flipped something in our society. To enable ourselves to focus on pleasures in the here and now and push back the reality of limits. And so if you uh, look at any uh, set of old paintings like this one from Georges de la Tour, this is the penitent Magdalene. This is the woman who uh, it's possible that she was the uh, woman possessed by many demons uh, and it's possible that uh, Mary Magdalene was the, the woman who Jesus uh, cast those demons out. It's possible that she was a prostitute. And here is a painting uh, talking about that tradition, displaying to us the penitent Magdalene. Penitent meaning she's sorry for her sins and she is turning from those sins. A couple things interesting about this painting that really reflect the old ancient view of death and life. And it's right here, the mirror and the skull. She's holding a skull. And there's a candle in front of the mirror. Mirror always symbolizing vanity for obvious reasons. That's what I'm going to check so that I don't have something out of place when I leave the house. And then there's also just this kind of love for who I am and how I appear. That's what we do before the mirror. And so here is Mary Magdalene with a mirror set to one side and the light, the candle in front of it. And then in her hand, on her lap, is a skull. Look at any painting of a saint or any painting of a wise person in their study, a scholar, an eminent person, uh, portraits of powerful kings, you will often find in that painting a skull. Why? That's morbid. That's grim. We don't want to look at that, much less fold our hands over it and hold it in our lap. What is she doing? She's coming to grips with limits. My life is limited. The skull is always a symbol of mortality. And so here it is in this painting. It's just one that I grabbed very quickly. There could have been any number of others. Sometimes you'll find paintings called Vanitas, the vanity of life, the emptiness of life, because there's something about death that makes us realize everything that we do seems to be empty when we die. And that is what Ecclesiastes is about. This morning, we're going to look at the perspective of Ecclesiastes on death. We're going to look at that skull. And because this is so countercultural, I'm going to make a plea to you this morning. Don't turn your eyes away from this. Don't be fooled that this subject is grim and morbid and something you should not think about. On the contrary, 
health for your life may begin today because you may realize for the first time, I can think about this limit, I can examine it, and I can realize I'm not in control of it, and I can let that hit me and change me. So I would plead with you, if you are tempted to hit the mute button on this sermon, or at least on this portion of it, don't. Let this hit. Let's see what might happen if we come to grips with this limit. So we'll take in this perspective, then we'll look at the command of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is a perspective on the vanity of life. It concludes in verse 8, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity, and that's his refrain. This is... This is the chorus to the song of Ecclesiastes. This is what started the book. It's all vanity. It, life is empty. And there's nothing you can do about that. All of your attempts to fill it through work or wealth or pleasure, nothing that you do fills the emptiness of this human life under the curse of sin in this world. So uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is the hair-raising climax to this book in which Solomon, the preacher here, says, let's look long and hard through a variety of images at the end of life, the ultimate limit on life that turns it to vanity. Now there's something in you that is going to resist that word vanity because we're Jesus people. We don't talk about the emptiness of life. That's not our selling point. We sell Jesus by talking about how we have life to the full, abundantly. And we sing songs about the abundant life and all of these things. That, and, and so we're not the people who dwell on the vanity of life. Because it's poor marketing, bottom line. And that's why preachers don't preach on Ecclesiastes, by the way. It's, it's very bad salesmanship. Nevertheless, God by His Holy Spirit, has put this word vanity in front of us this morning. It is an inspired word chosen by God Himself. It is without error. It describes our life. And so Ecclesiastes 12 simply asks this question. Given the emptiness of this life, how will you get beyond it? How will you survive death, if you can put it that way? Is there something more permanent than this life that is not empty? Here's Ecclesiastes 12. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then Solomon starts in with a series of images about death. 
starts with a cosmic set of images about the universe coming to an end. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. What is he talking about here? He's talking about an ultimate end of all things. When the sun goes out. When um, we were in Washington, D.C., we went to um, the Air and Space Museum. There was a fantastic planetarium show about the universe. And uh, it, we, we went through it. It was just amazing. Um, it was narrated by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And uh, the power of the universe, the power of suns and stars, the power of physics and gravity, all of these things just on display in about a 45-minute presentation there. And um, so it was amazing to look at that. It was also an exercise in not remembering the Creator because we're just going to forget about Him uh, in the midst of surveying the power of this uh, universe that we are in. But that's Tyson's uh, perspective. That's uh, a materialistic perspective. That's the way it goes when you go to the planetarium. But nevertheless, we understand that those powers, and scientists understand that those powers in our universe will come to an end. The universe expanding, gravity losing its grip upon us, the fuel of the sun going out, the stars going dark, the moon going dark, all of these things. And you say, well, that's a ways off. That's not going to happen today. Although, you know, when it's 106 degrees out, we, we might, could we turn it down at least? But it's not going to happen today. And uh, maybe in another six billion years, maybe when the sun runs out of fuel. Are you sure this doesn't happen every day? The sun, the moon, and the stars go out for the dying every single day. They go dark, and they are not seen again in this life. That's a cosmic reality, something that we take for granted, the ability to go out and look at the stars, to walk outside this door and feel the life-giving heat of the sun. That ends. So that's where uh, Solomon starts, at a very cosmic level, even a, an atmospheric level. The clouds return after the rain. Well, we kind of know what that was like this winter because we got a lot of rain this winter. So the, the rain came and then it cleared up and then these clouds came back. What is this, Oregon? <laughs> Solomon says those days are coming when the storm starts and it won't stop. And you're in the midst of it. You're being pelted by the hail and whipped by the wind 
and you're gripped with the cold. And you're wondering, is this ever going to end? Those days are coming, Solomon says. So that's how he starts. That's sobering enough. But then he moves on to what I'm going to call civic images or images of a, a community's life around death. You know, communities can die. Ever seen this happen? We're watching this happen right now. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But let's look at some of these images. They're disturbing. Verse 3. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. Strong men. The men who carried for their whole lives the weight of all the work, who gave their strength to all the work. And their strength that, that powered us through harvest, that powered us through the building season, that got us through the tearing down season, the strength of the strong men who got us through war, that strength, those strong men, they're, they're bent. They don't have the strength they used to have day is coming and the keepers of the house those whose job it is to keep the household going to defend the household provide for the household they look out at what is happening in the community and they just tremble what is going to happen to us because I can't keep this house if that keeps going on out there. That lawlessness, that um, waste, fraud, abuse of people. How am I supposed to keep this going and keep this house if all of that is going to keep going? Solomon says that day is coming. So let me ask you this, just to pause here. Do you feel this? We're in this kind of time. It's just a question of whether we realize this. And, and Solomon is saying, there's death here. There is an end to things here. Let's keep going. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. Interesting, I, I, on Sunday mornings I often check different study Bibles and commentaries just to be sure I'm not totally off my rocker. And I checked the ESV study Bible this morning and they said, we're not sure what this image means, the grinders cease because they are few, but the ESV study Bible proposed that it was about teeth. This is about aging, so you lose your teeth, you have few of those grinders, and so they stop grinding. <laughs> I just, I've, I've, never, I've never been shocked by the ESV before. It was bound to happen, uh, so it did. You know, maybe this is the end of all things. But uh, nevertheless, I don't agree that this is about teeth. This is about the grinders of the harvest. 
You've brought in the harvest. You've got the grain. But in order for the grain to be eaten, in order for it to sustain the community, it has to be ground at the mill. And so strong people have to get up and grind that stuff. Then you've got the flour to make bread, the staff of life that keeps the community going. This says, think about it. There comes a day when the grinders cease because they are few. You ever had this feeling of going out to the work and saying, am I the only one who gets how important this is? Am I the only one out here working this? Am I the only one grinding so we've got something to eat? You have that feeling? If you have, then you also know the feeling of, well, I got what I need. I ground flour for my household. I'm going home. I don't know about the rest of you suckers. But if they don't want to work, they can just starve. You know this sense? This is death in a community. This is when things really start to end. When it's every man for himself, every household for itself. And you take what you need and you run. Uh, he goes on. He's not done yet. Those who look through the windows are dimmed. It's not that the light coming in the windows are dimmed. It's not that the windows have the shutters folded over them and so the light is dimmed. It's a problem with those looking out of the windows. The ones looking out are dimmed. See what's happening there? They're going blind. Now this is partially aging, but this is also a kind of decrepitude that we are going to know very well in our country, but that we have not wanted to acknowledge. It's a failure of moral strength and the ability to see what is happening right in front of us. Those who look out of the windows are dimmed. And the doors on the street are shut. You lock your door. I do. I lock my door during the day. Why do we do that? That's really strange. If anyone from 75 years ago were dropped down in the streets of Chico today and saw people locking up their doors and their cars, you know what they would say? What's the matter with you people? What are you afraid of? And then we would give them the list of things that we're afraid of. Fear means the doors on the street are shut. No one gets in but us. And then there's this, in verse 4, this interruption. And it's hard to know why Solomon makes this interruption, but he does. The doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. So you're listening down at the mill. Is anybody down there working so that we have flour? No, it doesn't sound like anything's going on down there. 
we might say, uh, or might have said a hundred years ago, there's no smoke rising from the smokestacks. You go by the factory, there's nothing happening there. Uh, the sound of the grinding is low. When one rises up at the sound of a bird, it's so still and so quiet and so vacant that a little bird chirps and you say, What? What happened? Who? What? Scared by the birds. One rises up at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. Well, the singing stops. The rejoicing stops. Because there are no marriages, there are no births. All of those things are over. Verse 5, he's not even done yet with these images of communities dying. They are afraid also of what is high. I honestly don't know what he means by that. Things that are powerful, things that are above us, things we can't control. Maybe it's something like that. And terrors on the way, afraid to go out because of who's out there. Um, I don't know if you were in this part of town a few weeks ago um, when there was a gang shooting because of a drug deal gone bad down at Cohasset and Esplanade. And I was down here at the end of Panama trying to get out, as everybody does, onto the Esplanade without getting killed. And um, all of a sudden, there were police cars everywhere. Whole town came to a screeching halt. Um, terrors on the way. These are the kinds of things that Solomon is describing. Um, the almond tree blossoms. Isn't that a good thing? Well, here's the deal about the almond trees. And by the way, that's the, uh, that's the correct Mosaic pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> um, if, it's, if it's good enough for Moses, it's good enough for me. Um, <laughs> I gave a presentation on the menorah back in Louisville uh, in, in uh, one of my doctoral seminars and it, I said the, the menorah had almond blossoms on it and you should have seen the looks that those southerners and I said listen I am not going to be lectured here in Louisville about pronunciation of, and we all moved on the almond tree blossoms. When does that blossom? In February. What is this saying? It's blossoming, but it's no spring. It's a false spring. And we know that well, because that's what we have around here. The grasshopper drags itself along. Even they are tired. Or perhaps the grasshopper becomes a burden they're taking over because of the neglect of all things. Um, desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. Listen. Solomon is saying, remember your creator in your youth before this stuff happens because this stuff happens. And beloved... I don't care what you can get on Amazon. 
I don't care what you can watch on Netflix. I don't care what entertainment you can have, what sports activity you can have. You are watching this happen in churches. Churches are dying in our region because the grinders come to work and they say, really? We're the only ones who get this? Why don't we just go home? And more and more people are saying that. I would say there's hardly a better description of the church of Jesus Christ in the state of California than Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He's not done yet. He gives a series of poetic images, verse 6. Before, so now we're back up at the top. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. He repeats the word before in verse 6 and we're back in the flow here. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken. Pastor, what does that mean? I don't know. But I think it has something to do with your valuable things being broken up, and they are of no resource to you anymore. Before all of that happens, remember your Creator. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. That I do understand. So you're going to the well where all the water that you have is going to come from. You've got this pitcher. And the pitcher is the thing that enables you to take the water from the well to your house so that you can quench your thirst. And Solomon says, before the pitcher breaks, it is shattered at the fountain. There's water there, but not for you. Before the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern, so, how are you going to get the, the bucket down into the shaft of the well? Well, there's a wheel at the top. You just lower that guy down there. What happens if that wheel breaks? How do you get the water, how do you get the bucket down and get the water up? How's that going to work? Or the, or the wheel is broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Death is the ultimate limit on life. And because death must come, it empties all of our activities of the, the high significance that we put on it. It's vain. Let's pause here, and uh, if you have a question on a card, go ahead and raise your hand, and an usher will come and get that. I've got a question here uh, by text. You mentioned astrology. How do you feel about almost all nature and astrology shows talking from the point of view of evolution, not God? How do you feel about that? Um, I think maybe astronomy, 
astrology is predicting uh, the future by the stars, but astronomy is uh, what they do in planetariums. Uh, and so what, what I was talking about was the fact that you know, you go and you, you hear all of this science, but you don't hear anything about a creator. And here's the problem with that. If this world is really just spinning around in space, and there's all of this material, fiery power going on, then um, there is actually no meaning to it whatsoever. None. And we were talking about that planetarium show um, afterwards, uh, I was talking about it with the boys and uh, they loved it. It was one of the highlights of the trip because the thing was gorgeous. It was beautiful. This was not the planetarium show with just little dots up on the ceiling. This was like a, a CGI at its best and conceptualizing all of these things about the universe with beautiful and stunning and sublime patterns and animations. Here's what's funny about that. The great thing about that planetarium show was not the science, it was the art. Where did we get that? Why does it matter to Neil deGrasse Tyson that the planetarium show be beautiful and compelling and sublime. Why? It doesn't mean anything, does it? So if you take the creator out of it, take the meaning out of it, and as we're going to see this morning, put the creator back in, meaning comes back in, even in the face of death. Um, another question. Isn't water symbolic of life? So our source of life is cut off. That is correct. Why are we going to this fountain and having the pitcher shattered and the wheel broken? And it, because there's, your source of life is, is dead to you. You can't get life from that anymore. Um, so uh, all of these things um, we are seeing here in... Um, in this passage. This also seems to resemble another comment, individual Christians. Um, if I understand that, um, the way I would interpret that here in, in this passage is there comes a time when your community dries up and the other people around you aren't a source of life for you anymore. You feel this? I do. This is a, a dreadful thing. So let's look at the command that Solomon gives here. The command bookends this passage. Um, the command itself is given in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember. Bring it to mind. Don't let it slip out. Remember your creator when? In the days of your youth, before all of this stuff happens. Well, why, Solomon? Why shouldn't we just kind of live life and, okay, sera, sera, you know her. 
whatever happens, happens, and you know what what comes comes, and if it all dries up, it all dries up, and it's all meaningless anyway. Why why do this work on top of all of the other stuff to remember our Creator in the days of our youth? And Solomon is saying that the emptiness of life is the reason you should remember your Creator in the days of your youth. You will die. It, all of that stuff that he has just vividly painted for us is going to happen. What are you going to do to get beyond that? How do you get beyond that? If you don't remember your creator before all of that happens, then when it all breaks on your head, what have you got? Bitterness, missed expectations, destroyed hopes and dreams. And you sit there on a pile of ash and you say, I'm watching the end of everything I dreamed and hoped for. Solomon's saying you don't have to do that. You could change your hopes and dreams. Because if your hope and dream is for all of this knowledge, prosperity, pleasure, wealth, all of these things, if that is what you are dreaming of, then you are absolutely certain to be embittered and disappointed. You will go to your grave feeling robbed. How often do we see this? Um, so common. Um, so Solomon says, get this early. So let's think of life like a journey. You want to remember where you're headed. If you start out today to drive to L.A., I don't know why you would do that, but if you, if you were to do that, that's a long drive. You really want to remember when you get in your car and you drive down the road, you want to remember early that L.A. is in fact where you're headed because it's south of here and that's an important fact to keep in mind. And then, you know, you're driving down the road, stuff happens. If you know where you're headed, you can put the stuff that happens in context. You need gas. And so you got to stop somewhere, so here's Lodi, so we'll stop here and fill up there. You don't want to get stuck in Lodi. Uh, I've actually never heard that song. I just, I just love the title so much because it, it just is, it says so much. Um, nevertheless, I mean, what happens is you stop off to get gas, and then you say, well, this is nice. We could stay here. You forget where you're going. That's dumb. You don't want to do that. So what Solomon is saying is really just common sense. Fix it in your mind early. This is where I'm going. I'm going to God. And everything in my life is in that context. So as I journey through life, I'm not going to get stuck on any of these other things because my creator is calling. He has a reason why I'm here and he is, he is calling me to embrace that purpose, embrace his ways, and he is calling me to come to him. 
So, um, young people, if you do this, then every phase of your life, education, work, career change, marriage, death of loved ones, parenting, all of it, you can put that in context. There's a reason for all of it. It's all going somewhere. But if you don't have the Creator calling you from the beginning, then what are your children? Well, they're your accessories, right? They're there to please you. And that, that ain't going to happen. What is wealth? Well, it's all for you, right? It's mine. What are your possessions? What is your marriage? What, is, what are your talents? What is your career? It's there for you. And what happens when all the resources that sustain you dry up? What happens then? You have nothing, though you may have everything. It is possible for, for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul. And that's how that happens. Um, you don't want to know why the church in California is described so well by Ecclesiastes chapter 12? It's because we've forgotten the creator part. That the church is about the kingdom of Jesus Christ and his purposes, his commands, his ways. There is a purpose why we are doing this. And if the grinders are few or if they are many, we will get to work and grind because that is what we are here to do. It's purpose. So, uh, the, the command here is remember because you're going to return. Look at verse 7. This is a deeply resonant picture of death. It's resonant because it's vibrating with meaning from another passage, namely Genesis chapter 3. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, before the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was. The law of death is upon this world. It is done. You cannot change it, but Christ has. Who redeems us out of the dust of death? The one who went into that dust and came out again alive. That's who. Before the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Listen, do you know where you're going in life? In life, you're going home. Do you know where home is? You know the smell of home? You know what home looks like and sounds like? You know what the doorknob at home feels like? 
Have you forgotten home? We're returning home. The Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity, unless you remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Your Creator is able to redeem all of those things. And this is what Solomon is saying in the, the, the epilogue of this book. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are really interesting and worth pondering when you don't have anything else to do. Is that what this says? The words of the wise are like goads. We might say they're like cattle prods. They will prick you, provoke you, stimulate you, push you to action and decision. And that's what Ecclesiastes 12 is designed to do. It is designed to shock you with the ultimate limit on your life and say, look at it. Fold your hands over that skull in your lap. Feel the mortality and make your decision. What are you going to do with your lifetime? The time that you walk this earth, however long or short that may be? Are you spending your time to make your home here? Or do you realize that your lifetime is to be filled simply with refreshment along the way so that you get home where you belong? Does this mean that our lifetime is to be spent grieving, not delighting, um, not making beautiful things, not achieving important things? No. On the contrary, it says if you remember your Creator in the days of your youth, your lifetime will be spent pursuing God, His purposes, and you will outlast your lifetime. How does the Bible really measure time? Lifetimes, generations, even seasons go by a little too quickly for the Bible. It's lifetimes that are ticking by every second. That's what our God is looking at from His point of view. What are you doing with it? If you want to know how to manage your hours and minutes, you can't know that until you've decided what you're going to do with your lifetime. Have you made that decision? Let's look and see what questions we have here. We are driving to L.A. next weekend. <laughs> Maybe we should go by air. <laughs> what do you think? Good plan. It's so much faster, and you skip Bakersfield, and uh, yeah, and nothing against, well, that's not true. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, 
Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Our hope is in the end, the last day, when salvation is revealed, Christ is revealed, and his kingdom is unveiled. That's what we want a glimpse of, and that is the perfect reminder for us as we think about our lifetimes. Loved ones, this is the time to live for Christ. This is the time to spend your lifetime for him. You are headed home. Do you remember where that is? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we call upon your name right now. And first of all, we want to intercede for anyone here who has come to grips in the last minutes with uh, the limits on his or her life and is yearning for eternal life and realizes his helplessness before this ultimate limit of death. And she has come to grips with the fact that there is something beyond her control that without you renders her whole life vain. We pray, first of all, for these who do not know you but are realizing their need for you, that you would give them penitence, a recognition of their state and their need to turn. We pray that you would put light in front of their vanity, that you would shine light on the emptiness, more importantly, that you would fill it with your life, your purpose, your goodness, your grace. And as this person cries out to you right now, Lord Jesus, I will die. I see it. I know it. I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. As this person cries out to you, Lord Jesus, you died for my sins. Forgive me. Receive me. Give me your Holy Spirit so that I may live. As this person prays in this way to you, we ask you that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on that person. Give life right now. Light right now. Salvation now. And we will give you all the glory for these things and we pray them all. In Jesus' name and for his sake, God's people said, Amen. Amen.